that. And um, <clears throat> we spent the majority of our time in the book of Matthew, as we said. And we noted that it was a transitional book and it bridged the gap between the Old and the New Testament. And, of course, it revealed the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that. Then we discussed uh, the book of Acts, and we, we said that it was very important to remember that the book of Acts is not necessarily a doctrinal statement on church theology. You have to be careful with that. And uh, it is indeed, however, a historical account of the Acts of the Apostles. <clears throat> so we noted that as well. Now, um, as we began to work through this thing, we said that there were some things that were taking place. First of all, we said that uh, the book of Acts documented the transition of some things. We said, number one, it transitioned the law to grace, or the Jewish Old Testament structure to the New Testament church age, where the Jew and the Gentile are one in Christ. And then we noted also that God is dealing with a nation. Uh, God deals primarily with nations to God dealing with individuals in, that, in, in the book of Acts. And we see that transition taking place as well. And then we noted God dealing primarily with Jews to primarily dealing with Gentiles. And uh, so a lot's taking place. And to top it all off, we realize and we recognize that Peter's ministry to the Jews is between chapters 1 and 12 when we note then a transition to Paul's ministry in chapters 13 to 28. And so we see even that transitioning. So a number of things are transitioning in the book of Acts, making it a transitional book, which means we have to be very careful with it. Then we started touching on the Pauline epistles. And we said that you can find basically every problem that the church will ever encounter in these particular books, the Pauline epistles. And so <clears throat> we said that Romans, however, of all of them is kind of the kingpin. Uh, every circumstance, every situation in the church is pretty much addressed in Romans. And then again, it's reinforced and it's addressed further and even maybe more detail in some of the other books. But uh, we, we noted that uh, Romans is the greatest book in the Bible, at least in church age doctrine. And uh, we also said that it was basically the genesis of the New Testament. Even as you go to Genesis and it's the seed plot of the Bible, you go to the book of Romans and it's the seed plot basically of the New Testament church and, 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 and the doctrine of the church. And so we, we saw those things. Then we moved on to 1 Corinthians and we talked a little bit about that. And we said that in the book of 1 Corinthians, we run into a church that's in a real mess. We said that we never base church doctrine out of this book either, the book of 1 Corinthians. And some would say, well, why not? doesn't make any sense. Well, the problem is the book of 1 Corinthians is a book that teaches us what not to do versus what to do. Because in every chapter, as we noted it last week, uh, there's always something that the Apostle Paul is getting on them for. I mean, he's uh, addressing them, chewing them out for something that they're doing wrong, something that's not quite right. And so we saw that as we moved along in the book of 1 Corinthians. Then we came to, finally, we came to the books of uh, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And we said that those deal with the inner structure of the church. Galatians itself deals with justification by faith, we said. It's how a man is saved by the power of God and not by works. We said that Ephesians is the church, that, uh, the church defined. And boy, the book of Ephesians is awesome. We thought about and noted chapter, well, I'm not sure if we did actually, but chapter 4, we think about how he gave some uh, different uh, gifts to the church and how, you know, the church is required and necessary for the perfecting of the saints. And so we see the book of Ephesians Ephesians is a, is a, a book that defines the church. And it says, okay, um, what should a Christian look like? You know, what, what should we look like as believers? Well, Ephesians helps us with that. <clears throat> and then Philippians. We saw that it deals with rejoicing, and there's all kind of things, no matter what the circumstances, regardless of what your, your, your uh, position or state in life is even, boy, the book of Philippians says, now listen, 
You need to be filled with joy. You need to express the joy of the Lord. And uh, uh, it's just a, a tremendous truth in the church uh, that needs to be uh, uh, recognized. And so we saw that in the book of Philippians. Then in Colossians, we said that it's a book that covers a number of the same doctrines that we found in Ephesians and also in the book of Romans. So <clears throat> as we uh, uh, make our way through the New Testament, as we seek to finish it even today, that's kind of where we've gotten to in the New Testament along the way over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we want to continue with that. Now the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 6, we've read it a number of times, but it says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of it to Israel? And we said it's one of the most pivotal uh, uh, questions in the, the New Testament, obviously, and uh, it makes a big difference because it's dealing with the kingdoms again. And we know that the, the Word of God is a book about uh, a king and his kingdoms. And so uh, a very, very important uh, passage, and it's a, one in which the entire New Testament pivot, uh, uh, kind of pivots on. And so uh, we've been addressing that issue, and we've looked at it throughout uh, both the Old and New Testament. And it's been a pretty good journey, I think. And boy, it's sure an eye-opening one. Now, we want to begin again uh, tonight uh, where we left off. And so we're going to begin with the Pauline epistles, but we're going to begin with the books of First and Second Thessalonians, okay? And so we're going to look at those very, very briefly. And then we're going to run right into First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And uh, some say Philemon, Philemon, whichever. I don't know. I'd have to listen to uh, a Scurby and uh, see what he, he, how he pronounced it. Uh, <clears throat> what, Alexander Scurby, isn't it? Isn't he the one that does all the, the Scorby, Scurby, whatever? <laughs> if you got the Scurby, you're in bad shape. If you got the Scorby, you're good to go. Either way, okay, we'll try to make it work, all right? Okay, <clears throat> let's have a word of prayer then, okay? Father, we come to you. And Lord, again, we thank you for just the privilege that we have to gather. And again, Lord, it is Mother's Day. And Lord, we, we, we focused on moms this morning. And Father, I did want to get through this series and complete it, at least to this point, Lord, before I, I head on out uh, for vacation. And I just pray, Lord, that you just uh, bless, Father, the, the uh, service tonight. May we just glean and may we grow from this. Father, uh, uh, I, I, I just uh, really have been excited about just the opportunity to share so many truths with your people. And Lord, it's been awesome to see the people of God excited about receiving them. And Lord, we may not understand everything about this book, but Lord, every little piece we get helps us to put the puzzle a little bit more together and begin to piece it together so that we can understand it better and ultimately apply it to our lives even more effectively. And then Lord, uh, in the end, Father, we're able to share it Father, much more effectively as well. Now, Lord, bless us tonight. May you take this time that we have. May it be to your glory. We thank you for the music. It's been a blessing, the choir song, and then, Lord, that special. Lord, just the piano playing. Lord, what a blessing it's been tonight. Lord, thank you for this choir, uh, excuse me, for the um, congregational singing. Lord, folks, this lifting their voices up. Lord, that's just so encouraging to me. And, Lord, I trust that you've been blessed. Now, Father, bless us. May you just be with us tonight. We'll give you the glory for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, First and Second Thessalonians. <clears throat> Again, uh, First and Second Thessalonians deal with the doctrine of the end times as it relates to the church. When you begin to read those books, you realize you're dealing with the end times, not necessarily just always right now, but down the road. You take First Thessalonians. Paul's going to share the marvelous truth concerning the rapture of the church. Take your Bible, look over the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, uh, we're, we're kind of summarizing the book, but notice here in, in chapter 4, 
he addresses this issue of the rapture of the church. Again, it's not called the rapture, but it is a, a taking away, and we're going to see how what it says here in chapter 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That word prevent means go before. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We have the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, as we often refer to it, again, in the book of First Thessalonians. Now, when we arrive at Second Thessalonians, Paul's going to be correcting a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is, is that the rapture has already taken place. The misunderstanding is that the saints have already been received. And these saints are going, wait, 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 what's the problem here? You mean to tell me we're going to be going into the tribulation now? We've got to endure the tribulation? No, not at all. Matter of fact, that's not the case at all. We don't go through the tribulation, amen? That's a good thing. Notice 2 second, second Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 2. He's addressing a problem. He's going to make it right. He's going to try to help them understand that they haven't missed anything. They're still right on time, right on target. Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren... By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the the day of Christ is at hand. Now, before we go any further, notice it's the day of what? Christ. Now, some would misunderstand that and say, oh, the day of the Lord. Uh Uh-uh. The day of Christ. There's a difference. See, when you start messing with the Bible and you start changing words in the Bible, you change the meaning of what God's trying to teach and say. It is not the day of the Lord that's being discussed here. It's the day of Christ. There's a difference. The day of the Lord deals with the tribulation on into the millennium. The day of Christ deals with the return of Christ for the church. So Paul's going to try to put uh, uh, their misunderstanding to rest. Listen, he says, saying basically, listen, don't you worry about what you've heard, what you've read, what someone's telling you. No, let no man deceive you, verse 3, uh, by any means, for that day, that day shall not come. Now notice the difference. That day shall not come uh, except there become a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The day of Christ is at hand. But don't worry, that day... Not the same day. When you get into the Bible, you realize that when it says that day, deals with the day of the Lord now. That day, the day of the Lord, he says, isn't going to come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. When will Satan, in the person of the Antichrist, be revealed? After we're gone. After we're gone. Now again, there's just a lot of things going on here, but what we find in 1 Thessalonians is that he begins to unveil this truth of the rapture, and then he turns around in 2 Thessalonians and begins to say, now hold on, don't be concerned, you haven't missed it. You haven't missed it. You know, the day of Christ, you're good to go. You're all right. you're on target, you're on time, but the day of the Lord won't come without this. Then he goes on to talk about what's going to happen 
at that point and how the church is going to be removed and so forth. So anyway, there's a lot of things going on here and uh, the Apostle Paul deals with it and addresses it. And it is a church doctrine and it's important that we understand it and recognize it. Now, we talked that, that that ends the first section of the Pauline epistles. Then we run into the second section of the Pauline epistles. And they're going to deal with some personal notes or letters to the converts of Paul, or at least those that he truly influenced in a mighty way. We're going to find these books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Now again, they're going to give us some church or Christian doctrine on, on a very personal level now. He's going to be dealing with them as individuals, speaking to them as a, as a spiritual father, speaks to his spiritual sons. And so we're going to learn a lot of things here on a very personal level, and we can glean from it. And uh, the truth is, is that Timothy and Titus, uh, from what we can tell, based on how they're referred to as his sons in the faith, they were literally, you know, converts of the Apostle Paul. Um, the Bible never specifically tells us that Philemon was led to the Lord by the Apostle Paul. But if he wasn't, let me, let's be honest, he had a tremendous influence in his life. Tremendous influence. And uh, we know without a doubt he led his slave to the Lord. We know that. Onesimus, or however you want to say that again. Onesimus. Uh, how, however you say it, okay? And um, um, again, I'd have to listen to Alexander, the other guy. So anyway, <clears throat> this is very important. And it's very important because... You know, at least three of these these men that we're going to deal with, you know, all three of these have some tie to Paul very, very intimately. Okay, and so um, I'll tell you what, there's going to be some real personal stuff he's going to share with them. Now, that means that you then, as an individual Christian, can receive some real personal instruction as well. And you say, well, it's not to me. I know, but don't let that get you hung up, okay? Don't let it bother you. Um, because you're going to learn something. You're going to glean from it, and you'll be blessed by it. In First and Second Timothy, Paul spends a great deal of time in those two particular books cautioning Timothy about false doctrine and certain traps that Christian, Christians can fall into. Let's face it, we know that there are some things that Christians are very susceptible to. Well, Paul's going to be speaking to Timothy now and trying to warn him and trying to encourage him, trying to even prepare him for some of the pitfalls that can be faced in the Christian life. But the main purpose of those particular books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, is Paul's personal instruction to Timothy in order to prepare him for the ministry. To prepare him for the ministry. Get him ready for actual ministry. And someone says, yeah, well, I'm not going into ministry. No, don't forget and don't be fooled. Everyone that's a child of God, every child of God has a ministry. Every one of us ought to at least have a ministry. If that's the case, then we can glean and we can grow from First and Second Timothy. Although Paul's not writing it directly to us, he's writing it to Timothy saying, I'm going to prepare you for the ministry. And in this case, Timothy would ultimately be a preacher, a pastor. But we can all glean from the fact that, hey, he's a minister of the gospel. We're to be ministers. What can we learn from this books? How can we apply these directly to our lives? How can we make the application to us? Boy, there's so much there in those particular books. 1 Timothy 4, 12 says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. What about that verse doesn't apply to us? I'm not saying it's written to us. It was written to Timothy, obviously. 
But boy, when you talk about an, a practical application, man, are you telling me that that wouldn't apply to me as a believer? Let no man despise thy youth. These young men here today, they're trying to serve the Lord. They're trying to please Christ with their life. Hey, let no man despise thy youth. Be thou an example of the believers. In word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. It's not written to me. Well, in application, we, I think we can all apply that truth very, very practically in our lives. And so we see that uh, here in the book of, books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. Then we come across Titus. And Titus, of course, deals with... Um, Titus and Philemon both really deal with service. Uh, serving the Lord in service. Titus deals with the Christian service within the established structure of the church. So we're going to see how we're to respond, how we're to act, how we're to live, what we're to do in, 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 in relationship to the church and, and how we ought to act and serve, okay, within the context of the church. And so, it, it again, it, there's a lot of aspects of that particular book that kind of, kind of mix. You know, you see a lot of things spoken of in Titus that you see in Timothy, things like that. And, and that's okay. Again, reinforcing some things, introducing a few new things. But in either way, um, that particular book deals with Christian service again. Now, Philemon again covers our service to the Lord Jesus Christ as a bond slave. And, and obviously it's the case because he has a very vivid picture of it in the passage, and he, he uh, uh, relates it to us in that book of Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Matter of fact, he was Philemon's slave. And uh, again, don't get all bent out of shape and hung up on the slave thing. They had slaves in those days. It's just the way it is. It's an interesting thing about that, too. Because culturally, you know, of course, we've, you know, we've really shied away from even using words like that because we're so afraid of being labeled. But the fact is, is that the, the re- interesting thing to me is this. In those days, a slave was told to submit to his master. Okay? To serve his master with a smile on his face and to do it with a good spirit and a good attitude. And today in Christianity... A Christian wife doesn't even want to submit to her own husband. A Christian man doesn't even want to submit to the authority of the pastor. A Christian son or daughter doesn't even want to submit to the authority of a parent. And yet in those days, God clearly states that even the slave was to submit to the master. Isn't that amazing? The point isn't that, well, we should encourage slavery today. That has nothing at all to do with this. That's not at all the issue. The issue is is that we should understand that if Christ could expect a slave to submit to his master, how in the world can we excuse ourselves from submitting to biblical authority in our life? You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that. That was fun, isn't it? So anyway, Onesimus is a runaway slave. And of course, he, he is Philemon's slave, but Onesimus ends up in prison with Paul. And Paul has the privilege of leading this slave to Christ. And then what's he want to do? He wants to send him back now. And so he writes this letter to Philemon, saying, okay, listen, you're slave. He got saved. Treat him like a brother. As he serves you, love him. Isn't that great? Now, you say, well, what's that have to do with us? 
Well, see, God made you and God made me at one point. He owns me. He owns me. In a sense, if He created me, He really, in a sense, kind of owns me already, doesn't He? But you know what? There was a time when I ran away from Him. Just like Omnisimus ran away from Philemon. But all of a sudden, after I got tired of doing my own thing, after I come to Jesus Christ, after I was saved, I'm sent back to the Lord Jesus Christ to be a servant again. I, I originally was really created by God, but I went my own way. I get saved, and I'm being sent back to serve the same one that I fled from. Amen. See, that's exactly what we learn in this book of Philemon. We see that principle there. And boy, that's a principle that we can all glean from. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Boy, you and I, we, you and I ought, to, ought to serve the Lord. But we ought, we ought to understand our place in serving. We're bond slaves. We've been purchased. We don't have a right to do as we choose. We are His property purchased by the blood of Christ. And uh, boy, what a, what a vivid picture there is in that book of Philemon. So the books of First and Second Timothy, Titus and Philemon, show us our personal accountability as a Christian to God on a very personal level. What am I to be? What do I owe the Lord Jesus Christ as a child of God? Well, I can look in the book of First and Second Timothy, Titus and Philemon, and I can get a real good handle on that. And I can understand what God expects of me and what my personal uh, responsibility is. Then we come to Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. We're no longer in the uh, Pauline epistles, okay? And so we run into these four books. Now, Hebrews is another one of those transitional books. The three most dangerous and difficult books in the New Testament are all transitional books. Matthew, Acts, Hebrews. All three of these, very dangerous. You say, why are they so dangerous? Because the primary doctrinal emphasis is going through a change through the course of the book. You've got to be able to see the change it gets very confusing and it can be very difficult and often verses are misapplied because there's transition taking place and we have to be so, so careful. As we said, Matthew brings you from the Old Testament to the New. There's transition taking place. Acts brings you from the Jew to the Gentile. Transition taking place. Hebrews goes from the church to the, tran the, the tribulation period. Okay, so it's taking us from the church into the tribulation. Now, notice how even the names of the books, or the name of the book, Hebrews, Hebrews, breaks the order of the books. We're, we're talking about Pauline epistles. We got Paul, every time he turns around, it's to the church at Corinth, to the church at uh, uh, Colossae, to the church at uh, Thessalonica. And all of a sudden, we have a book we run into, Hebrews. The rest have the names of churches or men that are in ministry, serving in the local church, or preparing for service. Now we run right in smack dab into a book called Hebrews. Well, who are the Hebrews? They're Jews. 
Aren't Hebrews Jews? So look how all of a sudden there's a break now. There's a change that takes place here. The previous 13 books again, all written by Paul. Every one of them carrying the name of a church or an individual that's actually saved by the blood of Christ, just like you and I. Hebrews is addressed to Hebrews and they're Jews. So all of a sudden now, be careful, we're in a transitional book then. Some things are taking place here. Then we move to James. James is written to the 12 tribes. Notice what it says in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Someone says, yeah, but those are saved tribes. Anytime you're dealing with tribes, you're dealing with Jews. I mean, let's just be honest. We're dealing with, with, with Israel. We're dealing with the Jews now. And he's, he's, it, whether or not they're Christian Jews at this point or not, it has nothing to do with it. We're seeing the transition taking place. God's dealing with these Jews again. In the, in the order of the books even, we see things coming out that are just kind of neat, kind of interesting to me at least. But it's written to the 12 tribes. And then we also note that as we talk about the books of Peter, First and Second Peter, who's Peter an apostle to? He's an apostle to the Jews. So all of a sudden we have this book called Hebrews that's being directed, if you will, by name at least, to the Jews. We have another book called James that's written to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, Jews. And now we have First and Second Peter that's written by the apostle to the Jews. That's kind of interesting. And so we're going to see that although these books give us some very practical church information and they address church age issues and they can truly be a blessing and an encouragement to us and we can make application through these books galore, we need to be very careful because the doctrinal emphasis of these books is going through a transition from the church age to the tribulation. So just have to be very careful. Now, the church, again, as I said, does not go through the tribulation. The church is not translated in, it's translated out. Aren't you glad that we're not going to have to go through the tribulation? Now, listen, you've got to be careful with that because there are groups that still teach that even Baptists are going to go through the tribulation. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really not, I wouldn't be excited about that. Some say that, you, that somewhere in the middle of the tribulation, there'll be a rapture. Some say at the beginning of the tribulation, there's a rapture. Some say at the end of the tribulation, there's the rapture. Let me tell you, for the New Testament church, based on the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, based on the uh, Revelation chapter 4, uh, you know, based on the uh, picture that we have of Enoch being taken out, translated prior to the uh, flood, we see that there's a number of pictures as well as a number of scriptural uh, situations that give us great indication that we are gone. I mean, leaves little doubt, if any at all, that we're out of here before the tribulation starts. And yet, some would not see it that way. But, you know, traditionally, uh, if you will, uh, Baptists, at least fundamental Baptists, have always believed and have always held to the pre-tribulation rapture. And honestly, biblically, I don't see it any other way. Again, one may argue it, one may try to dispute it. But honestly, I think biblically, I don't think they have a leg to stand on. But nonetheless, I'm going to heaven. They can stay here if they want. Now, 
this group of books, um, James and uh, Hebrews, James and First and Second Peter, again they bring the Jews from the basically the restoration of the land through to the last days of Christianity and right back into the tribulation. What we see in in, in the Bible is that God, when He showed up the first time, the Lord Jesus Christ, He focused His ministry on who? The Jew. And He focused on the Jew. The Jew ultimately rejected Christ, and then He began to turn His attention to the Gentile and focus His ministry primarily on Gentiles. And now the Jew and the Gentile are one in Christ, obviously, in the body of Christ. As the Lord makes His way back the second time, the second coming, He's going to begin to focus on who then, you think? The Jew again. Why? Because the church is already taken out. The church is removed, and now who's predominant? You have the world, of course, that's going to be being judged, the Gentiles being judged. But you're going to have the Jew being dealt with. And so we see that taking place again. Even as there were miracles in the first coming of Christ, as he roamed the earth, did great miracles... He's going to start dealing with the Jew again. And who requires a sign? The Jew. So guess what we're going to see again? Great miracles again. All right? So all of those things will take place again. And so uh, we see some evidence of that in the books of of James even. We we see that in James. Um, The book of James, practically speaking again, is one of the greatest books in the Bible concerning everyday Christian living. It's a wonderful book. You can can really glean so much. But you do have to be careful Because once again, as we said, these are transitional books, as a group of books especially. And you'll be, you'll be, you'll see even that he talks about Job in the book of James quite a bit, uh, brings up Job. Well, Job's interesting character. In chapter 5, verse 11 of the book of James, it says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. He brings up Job. It's interesting, isn't it? To me, at least, it is. Because then when you consider that the book of Job is a picture of the tribulation, that's interesting enough. See, Job's attacked by Satan, even as Israel will be attacked by Satan. He suffers in the same geographical location that Israel will be in the tribulation. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job, which coincide with 42 months, or the three and a half years of the great tribulation. There's so many things that come together there and you see Job being addressed and dealt with in the book of James. It is a transitional book taking the Jew right there from the restoration of the land right on into the tribulation period. And it's, it's just, a, it's a neat thing. Also, Elijah's mentioned in the book of, of James. Um, Elijah is known for shutting the heavens up. Guess what's going to happen in the tribulation period? The heavens will be shut up again for three and a half years. It's, it's so interesting to note that those men are being addressed, dealt with. And um, so you see the Jewish flavor of the book even there uh, through, through the writing of it. So Hebrews is full of Christian principles. Full of Christian principles. First and second Peter have even more wonderful things to say concerning the church age and some practical tips, things that we can utilize and apply to our lives. However, again, you need to be very careful because doctrinally, Uh, Again, the application is primarily dealing with a nation again, with Israel, as it makes its way on into the tribulation period. Not saying we can't glean from it, can't grow from it, can't learn from it, but we need to be careful. Some of the most vile doctrines, uh, lose your salvation, is found right in the book of Hebrews. 
Again, just like Matthew, you know, except you endure to the end, you shall not be saved. Well, that, that's, that, that's in the tribulation. We see that. It's doctrinally lands you right in the tribulation. Chapter 25 of Matthew. Um, <clears throat> but, but the problem is, uh, Hebrews is a lot like that. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> we get into Hebrews 6 and other places and people get all confused. If we can rightly divide the scriptures, then all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. And so we don't allow it to, to cause us to shake our faith. And the devil wants to shake our faith, folks. He really does. So we have to be very concerned about that. First, second, and third John. Move on into those very quickly. Here in these particular books, I don't know about you, but I like these books. Um, you know, first of all, they're not very long. <laughs> that, that's nice sometimes when you're reading. You know, you feel like you really accomplished a lot. Yes, I went through, I've read three books today. Three books of the Bible. But, but... First John is awesome, let's face it. It's really great. And Second John is good too. Third John, wonderful. Every book of the Bible is great. But uh, these three books are very, very powerful and very helpful to us. But again, at this point, we're starting to see how even individual, get this, individual disciples' names, their very names can provide a little basic context for us. Think about Peter. Peter will always, in some way, deal with Israel. He always does. So when you see Peter show up, you're going, to, you're going to be dealing with Israel to some degree. Just the way it is. Paul, he's always the apostle to the Gentile. So you see Paul, Gentiles are involved. You're going to see Gentiles involved. Then John, he always represents the church. He represents the church. You say, well, how is that? Well, John is the one that's raptured out in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Look at that real quick, would you? Notice how interesting, uh, the, the, well, the, the wording, how... how um, it matches up so well with even um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, how it matches up with um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, when we start seeing all of those things, it's amazing. But notice what it says here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It says, after this I look. Now remember what's taking place. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the churches, right? The seven churches. Now, we believe, or at least have a pretty good feeling that those churches were literal churches we know, but also they represent periods of time in church history. It appears that by the time you get to Laodicea, you see the church as almost it appears to us today, a very selfish church, a very, a church worried about their rights and what, you know, what what's mine, and things like that. So we see church ages, uh, the, the church uh, through the ages, the last 2,000 years, reflected in these, these churches in chapters 2 and 3. At the end of chapters 2 and 3, we come to chapter 4. Right off the bat now, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will shew thee things which must be hereafter. Well, that trumpet, isn't that interesting how they describe that voice? We're going to have the trumpet of God too, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So what we see here, is, it appears that John definitely represents the church. So when we get a dealing with John, you're always going to have something that has to do with the church. It's just always going to somehow be there. John, again, the one who was raptured, Revelation 4.1. John also was the beloved disciple. He's the one found leaning on Jesus' breast there at the Last Supper. He, he, he has his, his ear to the heart of God. 
Then in John also, he's one of the very special disciples. He's the one that Jesus loved, you know. He, he, at least he speaks of himself of that in his, in his, his uh, portions of Scripture. He's the only one. He is the only one who fulfilled all the obligations and he never forsook Jesus. He never did that. Peter denied him. James ran off. All the others forsook the Lord and fled. But not John. He goes all the way to the cross. He goes all the way to the cross. I would like to think that we, the church, would do the same. John's epistles, you're going to find a kind of relationship, the kind of relationship with the Lord that you and I are supposed to have. That's what we're going to see in the books, of, of uh, especially 1 John. We're going to see the kind of relationship that we ought to have, that Christ wants for us with Him. Um, a good book for a new Christian to read is 1 John. Now I know it, you say, well, that's a tough one, boy. That's a hard one to live up to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because that's the relationship God wants with us. Right. And, and it's ultimately the relationship He wants us to have with others even. So 1 John's a wonderful book to begin with. Oh yeah, does it set the bar high? Without a doubt. But what a wonderful book. What a wonderful book. In 1 John, He tells you how to maintain a relationship with Him. He also tells you how to clean yourself up when your relationship breaks down. And then also he tells you how to get back into fellowship with him. Now, that's exactly what God wants for us today. You know, God, God's not as interested in you being a great evangelist or being a great missionary or a preacher or anything else as he is interested in you and I having an intimate relationship with him. That's the real key. And that's exactly what God truly wants from you and I. You, you know what's happening today? Here's the real problem. Uh, come on up here, Cody. Come on up. Hurry up. He's young, but he moves like a turtle. Just joking. Cody. Cody right here says, man, I want to be a preacher. Here's what's happening today. I want to be a preacher. But he bypasses his relationship with the Lord. He's not carrying Christ with him. He's not walking in the Spirit. He just has a goal. He has a dream. He has a desire to be a preacher, to pastor. To be able to kick his feet up on the desk. Preach once or twice a week and get paid a ton of money. And he's missing the real issue. See... He's going to try to be successful as a man of God without God. And that's where we're running into problems today in Christianity. Amen. Now, now watch this. Watch this. It's easy to see this when it all falls apart. Let me tell you something. There are Sunday school teachers that are just as guilty as the pastors. They want to be a teacher. They want to be a guide. But they don't want God. They don't have time to pray. They have time to be in their Bible. They don't have time to study. But they want to be have a position. Because it seems so cool. I'm teacher. We got bus captains. They want to be bus captains. In charge of a bus. Reaching children for the gospel. Boy, their motivation seems wonderful. Their goals are great. The problem is, 
They've stepped into this role as a physician. They've left God behind many times. They don't have a relationship with the Lord. They somehow got the idea that being right with God is holding a position in the church, being somebody in front of everyone. And God in the book of 1 John is saying, I don't want you to be anything till you are somebody with me. That's what he's saying. I don't care what you do for me. I don't need you to do anything for me except, first of all, be right with me. And we're striving so diligently to become something, somebody for God. And all along, leaving Him out of it. And we don't get it. We're discouraged. We're depressed. We're out of sorts all the time. We don't know why life is so crazy. And why I can't find any joy. Even though I'm serving God night and day. I'll tell you why. Because 1 John's been neglected. Because what matters more to us than a relationship with Christ is a position before the world. God help us, thank you, to get back to the biblical perspective. God says, I'm more concerned about my walk, your walk with me, than I am about your outreach to others. Because you have nothing spiritually, nothing permanent, nothing eternal to give to anyone till you have first met, fellowshiped, and abided in me. And First John's a great book for that. Great book. I don't know about you, but I can't read the book of First John without feeling like I'm a failure. So I said, boy, that's not a good way to read it. Man, are you kidding me? Have you ever really read it? Just the part about loving the brethren. It's enough to send you over the top. You know what I mean? Are you kidding me? It's unbelievable. In 1 John 1, 7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of, the, of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. That's how you have fellowship with the Lord. You walk in the light. Well, the Bible, uh, the, the, the light is defined for us in the book of Psalms, chapter 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. So, you say, well, I'm walking in the light. I have a relationship with the Lord. Well, but, but, no, I don't really read, I don't study my Bible. If I do, it's very seldom then you just lied. You just lied. You're either lying to yourself or you're lying to someone else because you can't walk in the light and not be in the Word of God because the Word of God is defined as the light. God said it, not me. We're so, so pious and we're so prideful and arrogant. We honestly want to convince ourselves that we're so godly because we do so much. From our own perspective. It's not about what we're doing. It's about what we're being. And are you walking in the light? Are you you begging God to reveal scripture? Are you spending time in his word? Do you long for this book in your life? You say, I don't really have a great desire. I'd rather read a magazine. I'd rather watch a TV show. I'd rather go for a walk around the block and meet God in his glory. 
then get into the Word of God. Well, maybe you're not really walking as much light as you think then. Because the light is defined in Roman in Psalm 119.105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, I could say it this way. The best way to walk in the light is to let your fingers do the walking. Some of you may remember that commercial, remember? Do the yellow pages, let your fingers do the walking. But anyway, okay. All right, Jude and Revelation and we're done. Jude and Revelation. These are the last couple books, of course, in the New Testament. They deal with the tribulation period and the end times. We're all aware of that, obviously. Jude, of course, is a prelude to the book of Revelation. And then, of course, we jump right into the book of Revelation. deals with the last days, uh, with the, 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 you know, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It deals with, uh, should I say, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, and right on into the new heaven, new earth, and all of that. So, you know, we see those end times, and uh, we see them addressed there. That's what Revelation does. And that's what even the book of Jude does, is it is a prelude to that. So that's really what we have is in the New Testament. And we finally come to the end of that whole book, the, the New Testament there. Now again, there are three books that you've got to watch out for. What are they? Somebody give me one of them. The next one? And the last one, Hebrews. Right. So Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. Be careful. Beware of those. Now, you know where to get church doctrine from right now, right? Of course, they're the what? Pauline epistles, right? Okay, that's where church doctrine comes from because they're addressed to churches, written to and for churches. And we know where to get some personal instruction, the Pauline epistles, but through the books of what? First and Second Timothy and also Titus and Philemon. We see some personal instruction being given. Um, we learn that Matthew bridges the Old Testament to the New Testament, that Acts bridges the Jews to the Gentile, that Hebrews bridges the church age back right on into the dealing with the Jews and the tribulation. And so we, we noted that. Again, the Bible is a book about a throne and two kingdoms. And so we need to be very aware of those kingdoms. And we talked about them. Of course, uh, I don't want to go into all of that again, but uh, we'll, we'll uh, maybe touch on that again as we get into some other areas. Now, we're going to take a break from the series for probably about four weeks, I think. And then I'm going to jump back in. There's four or five lessons I'm going to teach you. And uh, I think they'll be real help to you and encouragement. We're going to deal with some, uh, you know, uh, two most important words in the Bible. And we're going to deal with uh, learning by association. We're going to talk about a couple of things like that. And uh, you're, you're going to be encouraged. You'll be helped by it. Now that we've set the groundwork, we're really ready to start running and really starting to learn some cool stuff. So we'll look at that here in the near future. But again, let's make sure that our relationship with Christ is the kind of relationship it ought to be. If we're truly walking in the light, that means we're going to be in the Word of God. Now again, um, you know, if you, if you had, if you had um, um, pneumonia and you were supposed to be taking uh, uh, antibiotics and... You said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really doing well. I'm doing great, but you're not taking your antibiotics. Let me tell you, you can believe you're doing all right all day long, but you're only getting sicker and sicker. I mean, and I know that's not a good example, but you, you've got to, you got to understand that you, you can't separate yourself from God and His Word and still think that you're doing something great for God. I can't do that. You can't do that. We, we're, we're kidding ourselves, Okay. I can't say I have a great relationship with my wife, but I never talk to her. I never see her. And if I do, it's like, hey, honey, good luck at work today. I'll see you. I got work to do, too. That's, it's not going to make for a very good relationship. I can say all day, we got a good relationship. 
Me and my wife, we get along so well. You never talk to each other. No wonder you don't fight. But that doesn't mean your relationship's good. And you know what? It's the same with the Lord. Man, we've got to be in His Word. We've got to not just know, read it every once in a while. We've got to study it, meditate on it, memorize it even. Allow it to really make a difference in our life. Why? Because when we let it make a difference, He makes a difference because it's really the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Father, we come to you. Thank you again, Lord, for these that have assembled tonight for the express purpose of gleaning and growing from your word. I 